Chapter Three of the Black Eagle Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Overby, Parkland, Washington. Dedicated to Uni. Chapter Three of the Black Eagle Mystery by Geraldine Bonner. Jack tells the story. The appalling suicide of Hollings Harland, followed by the non-appearance of Johnston Barker, precipitated one of the most spectacular smashes Wall Street had seen since the day of the Northern Pacific Corner. It began slowly, but as the day advanced and no news of Barker was forthcoming, it became a snowslide, for the rumor flew through the city that there had been a welcher in the pool, and that the welcher was its head, Barker himself. For years the man had loomed large in the public eye. He was between fifty and sixty, small, wiry, made of iron and steel with a nerve nothing could shake. Like so many of our big capitalists, he had begun life in the mining camps of the far northwest, had never married, and had kept his doors shut on the world that tried to force his seclusion. Among his rivals he was famed for his daring, his ruthless courage, and his almost uncanny foresight. He was a financial genius, the making of money, his life. But as one coup after another jostled the street, the wiseacres wagged their heads and said, Some day. It looked now as if that day had come, but that such a man had double-crossed his associates and cleaned them out of twenty millions seemed incredible. It was especially hard to believe, for us I mean, as on the morning of January 15th he had been in the Whitney offices conferring with the chief on business. His manner was as cool and noncommittal as usual, his head full of plans that stretched out into the future. Nothing in his words or actions suggested the gambler concentrated on his last and most tremendous coup. Only as he left he made a remark that afterwards struck us as significant. It was an answer to a query of the chiefs about the copper pool. There are developments ahead. Maybe sensational. You'll see in a day or two. It was the second day after the suicide, and in the afternoon, having a job to see to on the Upper West Side, I decided to drop in on Molly Babbitts and have a word with her. I always drop in on Molly when I happen to be around her diggings. Three years ago... After the calamity which pretty nearly put a quietus on me for all time, Molly and I clasped hands on a friendship pact that, God willing, will last till the grass is growing over both of us. She's the brightest, biggest-hearted, bravest little being that walks, and once did me a good turn. But I needn't speak of that. It's a page I don't like to turn back. It's enough to say that whatever Molly asks me is done, and always will be as long as I have breath in my body. As I swung up the long reach of Central Park West, she's a few blocks in from there on the 95th Street, my thoughts, circling round the Harland affair, brought up on Miss Whitehall, whose offices are just below those of the dead men. I wondered if she'd been there, and hoped she hadn't. A nasty business for a woman to see. I'd met her several times, before she started the Azalea Woods estate scheme, at the house of a friend near Longwood, and been a good deal impressed as any man would. She was one of the handsomest women I'd ever seen, dark and tall, twenty-five or six years of age, and a lady to her fingertips. I was just laying around in my head for an excuse to call on her when the Villasite business loomed up, and she and her mother whisked away to town. That was the last I saw of them, and my fell design of calling never came off. What was decent civility in the country, in the town looked like butting in. Bashful? Ah, uh, probably. Maybe I'd been bolder if she'd been less good-looking. Molly was at home, and had to give me tea, and here were soapy cigars, and there were soapy cigarettes. Blessed little jolly soul, she welcomes you as if you were Admiral Dewey returning from Manila Bay. Himself was at the Harland inquest, and maybe he and the boys would be in, as the inquest was to be held at Harland's house on Riverside Drive, so as we chatted she made ready for them, on the chance. That's Molly, too. As she ran in and out of the kitchen, she told me of a visit she'd paid the day before to Miss Whitehall's office, and let drop a fact that gave me pause, 
while she was there a man had come with a note from some bank which from her description seemed to be protested that was a surprise but what was greater was that harland had been the indoor sea out longwood way there'd been a good deal of speculation as to how the whitehalls had financed so pretentious a scheme men i knew there were of the opinion that there had been a silent partner if it was harland who had a finger in many pies the enterprise was doomed i sat back puffing one of babbitt's cigars pondering why the devil hadn't i called if it was true i might have been some help to them before i had time to question her further the hall door opened and babbitt's came in with a trail of three reporters at his heels i knew them all freddy jasper of the sentinel who three years ago had tried to fix the hesketh murder on me and had taken twelve months to get over the agony of meeting me jones of the clarion and bill yarrington star reporter of a paper which when it couldn't get its headlines big enough without crowding out the news printed them in blood red they had come from the inquest and clamored for food and drink crowding round the table and keeping molly for all her preparations swinging like a pendulum between the kitchen and the dining-room i was keen to hear what had happened and as she whisked in with jasper's tea and babbitt's coffee a beer for yarrington and a whiskey for jones they began on it there had been a bunch of witnesses the janitor the elevator boy harlan's stenographer who'd had hysterics and jerome his head clerk who'd identified the body and had revealed an odd fact not noticed at the time the front hall window of the eighteenth story the window harlan was supposed to have jumped from had been closed when jerome ran into the hall jerome's positive he opened it said babbitts he said he remembered jerking it up and leaning out to look at the crowd on the street well how do they account for that i asked harlan couldn't have stood on the sill and shut up behind him jasper explained no it wasn't that window he went to the floor below the seventeenth the janitor going up there an hour afterwards found the hall window on the seventeenth floor wide open that's an odd thing i said going down one story you can't apply the ordinary rules of behavior to men in harlan's state said jones they're way off the normal i remember one of my first details was the suicide of a woman who killed herself by swallowing a key when she had a gun handy they get wild and act wild yarrington who was famous for injecting a sinister note into the most commonplace of happenings spoke up the windows easily explained what is queer is the length of time that elapsed between his leaving the office and his fall to the street that frank's girl when she wasn't whooping like a siren in a fog said it was six o five when he went out at twenty-five to seven the body fell half an hour later he looked at me with a dark glance what did he do during that time i'll tell you in two words said jasper stop and think for a moment what was that man's mental state he's ruined he's played a big game and lost but life's been sweet to him up till now it's been given him everything he's asked for there's a struggle between the knowledge that death is the best way out and the desire to live to express it in language more suited to our simple intellects said jones he's taken a half hour to make up his mind precisely where did he spend that half hour said yarrington in a deep meaningful voice hi you yarrington said babbitts this isn't a case for posing his burns on the trail what's the matter with him spending it on the seventeenth floor hall molly who was sitting at the head of the table in a mess of cups and steaming pots colored the picture pacing up and down trying to get his nerve oh i can see him perfectly strange said yarrington looking somberly at the droplight that no one saw him pacing there a great deal stranger if they had cut in jones considering there was no one there to see it was after six the offices were empty they had the laugh on yarrington who muttered balefully dipping into his glass if it fits in with his character of harland i said the stuff in the papers all you hear about him he was an intellect first cool resolute hard as stone that kind of man doesn't act on impulse as mrs babbitt says he probably paced up and down the empty corridor with his vision ranging over the situation 
arguing it out with himself and deciding death was the best way then up with the window and out do you suppose mr barker had any idea he was going to do it when he left molly asked babbitts laughed ask us an easier one molly jasper answered her looking musingly at the smoke of a cigarette i guess mr barker wasn't bothering much with about anybody just then his own getaway was occupying his thoughts you're confident he lit out said jones what else why if he wasn't lying low in that back room didn't he come out when he heard miss franks's screams why hasn't he shown up since where is he that idea they've gotten in his office that he may have had aphasia or been kidnapped is all tommy rot they've got to say something and they say that the time was ripe for his disappearance and things worked out right for him to make it then and there if he didn't slip out while miss franks and jerome were at the hall window he did it after they'd gone down it was nearly an hour before the police went up he could have taken his time quietly descended the stairs and picked up his auto which was waiting in some place he designated that's the dope said babbitts and it won't be any more sleeps as the indians say before that car is run to earth you can't hide a man in a french limousine for long he was right johnston barker's car was located the next day and the police knew that the head of the copper pool had disappeared by design and intention his clerks and friends who had desperately suggested loss of memory kidnapping accident were silenced their protesting voices died before the evidence that was conclusive judge for yourself on the morning of january the eighteenth henny the chauffeur turned up at the newark court telling a story that bore the stamp of truth at five o'clock on the day of the suicide he had received a phone message in the garage from barker this message instructed him to take the limousine that evening at eight fifteen to the corner of twenty-second street and ninth avenue there he was to wait for his employer but not in any ordinary way the directions were explicit and in the light of subsequent events illuminating he was not to stop but to move about the locality watching for barker when he saw him he was to run along the curb slowing down sufficiently for the older man to enter the car from there he was to proceed to the jersey ferry cross and continue on to elizabeth the objective point in elizabeth was the railway depot but instead of going straight to it the car was to stop at the foot of the embankment on the pennsylvania side where barker would alight further instructions were that henry was to mention the matter to no one and if asked on the following day of barker's whereabouts deny all knowledge of it pay for his discretion was promised henny said he was astonished as he had been in barker's employment two years and never piloted the magnate on any such mysterious enterprise but he did what he was told sure of his money and trusting in his boss at the corner of the two streets he saw no one looped the block and on his return made out a figure moving toward him that slowed up as he came in sight he ran closer and by the light of a lamp recognized barker and skirted the curb as he had been ordered with a nod and glance at him barker opened the car door and entered the run to elizabeth was made without incident henny stopped the car at the pennsylvania side at the culvert above which the station lights shone barker alighted and with a short good night mounted the steps to the depot on the way home going at high speed henny rounding a corner ran into a wagon and found himself face to face with a pair of angry farmers they hailed him before a magistrate to whom he gave a false name representing himself as a chauffeur joy-riding in a borrowed car he told this lie hoping to be able to hush the matter up the next day when he read of his boss's disappearance in the papers he was uneasy knowing discovery could not be long postponed the number of the car overlooked in the rush of bigger matters was made public in the evening papers on the seventeenth then he knew the game was up admitted his deception and the identity of his employer inquiries at elizabeth depot confirmed his story the jersey central and pennsylvania tracks run side by side through the station at nine thirty on the night of january fifteenth the ticket agent of the pennsylvania line remembered selling a philadelphia ticket to a man answering the description of barker he did not see this man board the train being busy at the time in his office 
None of the train officials had any recollection of such a passenger, but as the coaches were full, the coming and going of people continuous, he might easily have been overlooked. After this there was no more doubt as to Barker's flight. The papers announced it to an amazed public. Shaken to its core by the downfall of one of its financial giants, the collapse of the copper pool was complete, and Wall Street rocked in the last throes of panic. From the wreckage the voices of victims called down curses on the traitor, the man who had planned the ruin of his associates, and got away with it. They congregated in the Whitney office, where the air was sulfurous with their fury. And from the Whitney office, the Whitney detectives, Jerry O'Malley at their head, slipped away to Philadelphia, with their noses to the trail. With his picture on the front page of every paper in the country, it would be hard for Barker to elude them. But he had a three-day start, and, as O'Malley summed it up, it has only taken seven to make the world. End of chapter three. The hall window? He did it at...